As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Father, it's a wonder to us, I pray it is a wonder to us. That we have the very word of God before us. I, I know we, we live in such luxury that many of us have multiple copies laying around. And, uh, and we forget that that is a, uh, a new thing for believers in Jesus to have the scripture so available. And uh, so we pray we wouldn't take it for granted just thinking because we have copies of this book then we must have read it. But enable us, God, to be drawn to it, cause us to be drawn to it, that we might read it and consider it and meditate on it, and it might be as it proclaims to be life to us. So even now, Father, as we read and listen and think, I pray that you would be with us to enable us to understand and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to James, Epistle of James, New Testament, towards the end. James chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 through 11. James chapter 5, please. Verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, for those of us who've been reading through James together, the bluntness at which he begins this passage, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are about. Oh, isn't any surprise at all. I mean, we've been in, we, we've been experiencing this as we've been reading through this together. He's, James just comes right out and says it right to the point, and so we get the bluntness of his words here. Remember, James is writing to a group of Christians who, at least some of whom, and at various and sundry times are finding it difficult to live out their faith in the context in which they live because of 
opposition. Uh, they were in Jerusalem. Many of them you remember and were forced out of Jerusalem because of their faith when persecution came. Now they're scattered about James, who was an elder in the church, pastor in the church, leader in the church in Jerusalem, now writes to them about the conditions in which they find themselves, giving them wisdom from God as to how they're to live in the midst of this situation. And, and he, he talks to them as one who understands their situation because they're going through various trials, he says, various difficulties, trials of their faith. And these trials are difficult by the very nature of being trials. And they're to test their faith. God has a good purpose in this testing of their faith. It's to prove and to purify their faith so that through perseverance, meaning these trials might last a while, might last a long time, but through the perseverance of them, their faith will be proven, their faith will be purified, and they'll grow up, they'll mature in the faith. That's the, the goal of all of this. And he says, now, you need the wisdom of God for this, so pray believing, meaning pray for God's wisdom and he'll give it. But you must believe as you pray. Why would you pray if you didn't believe? And you're asking God for wisdom, so you're believing that he has it and that he will give it, and that his wisdom is real wisdom. It's the only wisdom. Once you get this wisdom, that you'll follow it. That's the sense of believing God when we pray. Once we receive it, we'll follow it, because it's real wisdom. It's the only wisdom. He says, so go after it, seek it. In that way, because he says there is a wisdom that's common to the world. There's a wisdom that's common to us outside of God. And that wisdom, though, leads ultimately to ruin in every way. It ruins our relationship with God. It ruins our relationships with each other. Because that wisdom, he calls it as earthly or unspiritual. Does it come from the Holy Spirit? And it's demonic. It's, it's the same wisdom that Satan pushes upon us. And he did in the garden when he said you can be like God. That you don't really need God. That you can govern your own life, if you will. That kind of wisdom ruins our relationship with God. Because we won't pray. Why would we pray if we're God? Right? Why would we pray if we think we have it? And so we won't pray. And then even when we do pray, we'll just be asking God to verify and validate our own lives and what we think is best and what we think is best is wrong and we're only going to spend it on ourselves selfishly that's the problem you see it's a self-centeredness it makes us proud and remember that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble so in this pride we'll miss we won't receive grace and so it ruins our relationship with God we become actually James calls us God's enemies. And so we should be after the wisdom that comes from, from God. That wisdom is, is a wisdom that is characterized by a, a humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We, we come to God saying, I don't have it. I need you. Please give me your wisdom. That sense of humility, not pride. That sense of wisdom. Therefore, we receive, you see, grace. From God, we submit to Him, and we purify ourselves. And it's it's a wisdom that that results in good works. Why? Uh, because we realize who we are before God, and that He made us. And now He's the one to instruct us, to lead us, and obedience to Him 
is love to him and love to others. And so it results in a life of peace with others as opposed to a life of hostility with others. Why? Because we're not seeking our own way, but we're seeking the best of others. And it's that sense, you see, that strengthens our relationship with God because in humility he gives us grace and our relationships with each other because we're seeking the best for each other as opposed to selfishly living out our lives. Does that make sense? We, we together, we get on, I know it's early, but move a little bit. I know you're Presbyterians. It helps me. So so there you go. Uh, so so we, we get that. We understand that. Now James comes with a particular, another particular issue in mind. And he addresses two groups of people. He addresses the rich and he he addresses the brothers. That's why I kept all of this together. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, he addresses the rich. And then we see in verse 7, he addresses brothers. That would be brothers and sisters in the day that James wrote and when much of the Bible was translated and still continues in that tradition, uh, being faithful to the text which says brothers. It means everybody, brothers, brothers and sisters, if you will. But that sense of, of all. And so he divides it up here, but we get the sense, at least most scholars would make this point, that the rich to whom he writes aren't believers, but the brothers, of course, are. And so what he's really writing about is how do, how do, how do Christians live in the midst of being exploited, if you will, or even live in the midst of injustice towards them um, by these who he calls Rich. Now, what's curious here is why does he do that? Well, in other words, why does he address the rich? They're not going to be in the church when he, when this is being read. So, 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 why does he even bring this up? Well, he brings it up, no doubt, because there's a real situation going on that there are rich who are exploiting these poor Christians. So he wants to know. I get it. I understand. And he also wants to teach them something about the rich. What will happen to them? But of course, subtly perhaps, but in the midst of that, it's also a lesson to all of us because there's something, I think, if we're honest, within us, that we would all sort of say, I'd really like to be rich. <laughs> right? I'd really like to be rich. And uh, the scripture, as we know, says... That's dangerous. I read a passage earlier from First Timothy that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, as American Christians, we like to stress that money isn't the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of it. Somehow we think we can escape the love of it uh, by having a lot of it. And so we really like to, to, to emphasize that it's not really money that's the problem. And, and that's true. It really isn't wealth that's the problem. It's what wealth can lead to very easily because we can very easily find our security there, our identity there, our purpose there. We, th we think it supplies really everything we really do need and, and it can distort our hearts, really, if that's our treasure and it can so easily become. So, so the Bible speaks pretty pointedly against it, 
all the time, reminding us it's not the wealth that's the problem. And yes, it is the love of it, but, but, but don't think for a minute that we're that far beyond the rich that he talks about here even. So he addresses them, but he addresses them really with this point of, okay, how were they to live in the midst of a situation like that? So let's kind of walk through it together. Uh, chapter five, these first six verses about the rich. Notice how he begins. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. Now that's prophetic kind of language, prophetic in the sense that it sounds like the prophets, right? It sounds like the prophets as he addresses them. In fact, um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter, Isaiah chapter 13, we, we read very similar uh, language. Uh, verse 6, Isaiah writes, when he talks about judgment, he writes, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. And so, so what's he saying to, to these who he's calling rich He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Well, he isn't saying repent. Now they should. But the sense of it is judgment is coming. And so you should anticipate that. You should, you should, you shouldn't be thrilled with and and shouldn't be relishing in your riches. But if you really knew, you would wail and howl for the miseries uh, that are that are really coming uh, upon you if you flip to Re- uh, revelation in chapter 18 you'll see what um, james means um, this is a chapter in revelation the fall of babylon it's a, it's, it's a judgment passage in revelation a final judgment passage one of them and it gives a certain look at that If you look in verse 11 here, it deals with kings and ship owners. But verse 11 uh, speaks to those to whom James is speaking of the rich uh, merchants. And it says this, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. So here are the merchants and they're in the midst, they're seeing this, the judgment of all that and uh, and they say, the f- he says, the fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you. All your delicacies, all your splendors are lost. You're never to be found again. And the merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and pearls. Uh, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. In other words, all their hopes and dreams, everything that they desired, you see, are now gone. And, and, and so they would in the last days when seeing this judgment, James is just fast bringing this, uh, bringing them up to date on that, fast forwarding to them to that place and saying, you should weep and howl for the judgment is coming upon you because you see, they lived for today. Notice how he puts it. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat up flesh like fire. You, lay, you have laid up treasure in the last days. 
What an interesting expression. They've laid up treasures in a sense for today. What they don't realize is these are the last days. Those treasures aren't going to last. It reminds us, I think, of what I read earlier from Matthew in chapter 6, Lips of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, uh, as, as, as he speaks concerning these treasures. We've said all along that James uh, alludes often to the Sermon on the Mount, to his half-older brother, Jesus. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. They're laying up treasures, in a sense, for now. For this, they're forgetting that these are the last days. And when these days are over, those treasures will be worthless, meaningless. And even when Jesus says that we're to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't work. (laughs) He doesn't mean that we shouldn't necessarily have things. But his point is, why do you have them? What's their real value? Do they make you thankful to God? Thankfulness to God that's a treasure in heaven, you see. And, and what's happening in the context of your character? Are these things that you have used an expression of love to others in the context of your family, in the context of friends, in the context of those in need? You know, where, what's really happening? What's really true in your own heart, in your own character concerning these things? Are you building that which is valuable in the kingdom of God that follows after God's righteousness? Or just those things for yourselves that build yourself up in some way. If they're building yourself up in some way, really it's not helpful in the long run. It's just a temporary thing, an eternal thing. Is it building up your soul to live in eternity in the kingdom of God? That's Jesus point and he says where your treasure is there your heart will be also and your treasure will testify against your heart either in a good way yes it belongs to me or in a bad way no he doesn't and and that's his point for these rich they're 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 uh, accumulating in the same sense you remember we've alluded in the last couple of weeks so I won't do it again but alluded to the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 where Jesus tells the parable of the one who, 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 who thinks, in a sense, that his life consists of the abundance of his possessions. If he has enough, he'll be fine. He looks and he has enough, so he builds bigger barns. And then he realizes that was his last day. And, and nothing in his barns at that moment in time was going to be helpful now that his life was demanded of him. Just simply be worthless and he spent all his time on that and his heart his soul his life was not rich if you will as Jesus put it towards God why did he have all of that for his own security he thought this makes me king God I'm good all is well it wasn't And so Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And they weren't. And so their gold and their silver 
would corrode, even though we suspect it doesn't exactly corrode, and, 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 and that would be evidence against them. His, his point is this will be worthless to you, just like your garments will be moth-eaten. Uh, you've laid up treasures uh, in the last, in these last days. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, again in another judgment passage similar to what Isaiah was speaking, but uh, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 7 and verse 19 puts it like this. He says, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it for it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. In other words, the problem with serving our possessions is that when we need them the most, they can't help us at all. They can't help us at all at that point. And it's his point, James' point, is that these will be evidence against them and they'll eat their flesh like fire that is in hell. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke and chapter 16. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked, up, licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' table and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good, your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. In other words, one of them had laid up treasures in heaven. They were now comforting him and the other didn't. And these treasures aren't things that are sitting in heaven for us in that sense that we earn. But they're that which enables us to be in fellowship with God and enjoy him. And the rich man had none of that. He knew none of that on the earth. He would know none of that in glory. For there he was. His wealth didn't help him at all. And then not only what they did with it in hoarding it, and it was also how they got it. Verse 4, James writes, Behold uh, the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, uh, which, um, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so he's saying, listen, you were unjust. You defrauded them. We, we know the way uh, life worked in those days, especially for the poor and the rich. Uh, a, a, a laborer would be hired by the day and be paid essentially what he could live on for the day. If he didn't get paid at the end of the day, then he had nothing for the next and thus he would have no food. But the wealthy were defrauding and saying, all that matters is me. That's not the wisdom of God. All that matters is me. You don't matter. 
And even though you've worked for me, and even though I know you, this I'm going to keep it back, and I, I won't pay you. And she's not only what they did with it, but how they got it was speaking against them. And, and there's a sense in which James is saying, this is, this is the evil in our hearts. The selfishness. If run rampant, the selfishness that's not renewed into love by the Spirit of God. And then verse 5. You've lived, in, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. In other words, you've only cared for yourself again. You haven't cared for anyone in need. All of this was so you could have more and you could accumulate. And he says, but really what you've done is you've fattened your hearts. Now that may sound really good, but he said for the day of slaughter. In other words, he's saying, listen, you're just like a cow that's been eating a lot. And the cow's going, this is great. They're feeding me a ton. I love this. <laughs> Only because the cow doesn't know the end to which he's been fed. And the rich the same. He said, you don't realize what's happening. You're so deluded. You think all is well. You think you have everything that you need. And yet, this will just lead to your judgment and demise. And he said, in the midst of it, you've condemned and mur- murdered the righteous person. He doesn't resist you. The sense in which uh, the righteous person, is, as Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5, again in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is, is writing, uh, I mean, Jesus is speaking, and, 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 and Matthew writes it down for us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, you don't resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn on the other also. If anyone would sue you take your, take, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs for you. Don't refuse the one um, who would borrow from you. He says, these are righteous people. They're working for you. They're not resisting you. And yet you continue to abuse them. You continue to exploit them. You continue to defraud you. They're righteous in what they're doing. You're unrighteous. And what you're doing is condemning them to a life of poverty. What you're doing is murdering them. No doubt some even would have died. And so this is, the, this is what's happening here. And so, again, we ask the question, why does James write this to them? I think he writes this to them because that's what they're experiencing. And they're, in a sense, asking, he's writing to them, how should we live in the midst of this? Think of their lives. They're being exploited. They have nothing. How are they to live? Now the scripture tells us that if we're being exploited in various ways, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, if you're a slave and you can get out of being a slave, go for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 21. But you see, there are times, and this is a time for them, when they couldn't get out of it. They had the moral right, but not the political or legislative right, or courts weren't in their favor. They really couldn't sue these people who were defrauding them. They couldn't really leave the situation and get another job. They, this was it for them. They were, they were stuck in the midst of that with no good place to go. So we say if you're being physically abused, you should leave that situation. If a kid's being bullied, then tell somebody and get out of the situation. Don't just stay there and take it. That's not James' point here, nor Jesus' point 
in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but, but the point is, there are times when we're in this situation. And there's absolutely, positively nothing we can do to get out of it. That was their situation. They were stuck there. What were they to do? Now, we don't know that that well because we're rarely stuck, stuck in a situation. But how do we, how do we live when we are? How do we live when a circumstance comes to us and it's simply going to stay there? And we're simply going to be in it. And it's simply going to be difficult. And it's a trial. It's trying our faith. It's trying our lives. How, how, how do we live in the midst of that? It may come as a culture that believers, we don't know, believers will be marginalized in such a way that we may find ourselves more in the situation that the people in James' day found themselves than we find now in our present situation. That can happen. I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying it's going to. Hope it doesn't, by the way. Pray against it. But it may uh, happen that that's the situation we find ourselves in. And some of us can see down the road a bit and see maybe that's going to be more likely than less in the years, decades to come in our own country. But however, we've all been stuck in situations, whether they be physical, whether they be illness, whether they be financial, whether they be whatever they may be, we find ourselves here. And so the question then is, what's the wisdom of God for us? How do we cope? How do we live in the midst of a situation like that. And James tells them this. Be patient. Be patient. Be steadfast. Establish your hearts. That is strengthen your hearts in the faith. And then he adds this to the community. Don't grumble against each other. That is get along in the midst of this if it's a group thing, if it's true for all of us, don't grumble. If it's true for yourself, don't grumble against those who aren't going through this. Don't grumble against those who are. And get along in the midst of this. You need each other. He says, be patient like a farmer is patient. He says, listen, a farmer is completely dependent. He puts the seed in, does all his work and all that. But he's dependent on the early rains and the latter rains. That was the way they farmed. It took a number of months to, from seed time to harvest. And, and the, they did it, uh, planted right before, hopefully, there would be a time of rain. And, and they harvested, hopefully, right after a time of rain. That was, that was kind of the, the, the seasonal um, ebb and flow of their farming. And he says the, the farmer knows something's going on and he's, he's busy and all of that during this time, but, but he's dependent. He's being patient. He's waiting until these rains come before he, he harvests. And so he'll be able to have a good harvest. So that, that he's patient in the midst of that. We're to be patient too. Well, what can enable us to be patient? Well, he says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So this patience is indeed a waiting, but it's not only that. It's a waiting with a certain self-restraint in their situation, not to take vengeance, not to retaliate. They're in it. They can do nothing about it. Be patient. The enemy of patience is this sense of vengeance or <laughs> taking wrath in this context. Or the danger of despair. And she says, well, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, you see. 
The Lord will come. And when the Lord comes, it's the word coming in Greek, you know this, it's parousia. It's this sense of, of coming. And that was a word that was often used of the, about a king coming. And he says, so the king will return, the king will come. That's why we sang the first hymn, we, first song we sang this morning about uh, the king of saints. But, but when, when, when the king comes, he's going to uh, bring justice. So, so wait. Wait for him. Don't take it upon yourself. Wait. He's, he really is going to come. Just in the same way that the farmer had a sense of confidence and faith that the early and the latter rains would come, uh, trust. You can trust because Christ has come and he is coming again. So you can, you can trust. It's not always going to be like this. A day will come when all will be well. So be patient and trust and trust him. He, he goes on to say as well, establish your hearts uh, for the coming of the Lord is, is at hand. That is, it's near. And you want to say, well, how in the world is the coming of the Lord near? It's been a long time. It wasn't so long for James. He could probably get away with that without people going, well, okay. But, but still, even as we read Second uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, even in those days, Peter said, there are scoffers. It says, oh, he'll never come. And so people have been saying that for, for now centuries and, and millennia. He's not going to come. How, you keep saying he's going to come. And one sense then, is he near? Well, he's sensed there. He's near in a, I would say, a redemptive historical way. That is the logic of it. Everything's been done. He has come. He has died and risen. He rules and reigns over all things. For the glory of God and, and for his people. So, so, so nothing else really needs to happen. Uh, what we know is from Second Peter chapter 3 that God is being patient. He's being patient for all to come to repentance. That is those who are going to come to repentance to come to repentance. So he's just waiting this out. That's all that needs to happen till the fullness of God's elect comes in. And then, boom, Jesus comes. We don't know when that will be. Jesus said he didn't know when that would be. We don't know when that will be. Uh, And so it's near in that sense. All's done, you see, before he comes. And it's probably near in another sense, too, just as we think about it. I remember as a kid when Thanksgiving came, Christmas seemed very near to my parents. Didn't seem near at all to me. And so it seems near to the mature, to the wise. It doesn't seem near at all to the immature and the unwise. It's near. He says, it's at hand. Play that over in your mind. So it will enable you to be patient and to wait in the midst of difficulties and to wait in the things that you can do nothing about. And to wait in the time period for that. And he says, wait it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. The Lord is coming. I've known many who have lasted lives of debilitating illness, being patient, for the Lord is near. Not just by death, but the Lord is near. A day will come when. I've known people deal with difficult work situations that they had to remain in. Knowing that the Lord is near. I've seen people wait and be patient in the midst of difficult relationships. They could even be marriage relationships. 
that the Lord is near. Wait for the coming of the Lord. It won't always be like this. Persevere, continue on. Establish your heart. Strengthen your hearts in the things of God. Enable this to strengthen your heart, that the Lord is near. The coming of the Lord is near, you see. And then he goes on to say, uh, not only that, but, but don't grumble against each other. It's so easy in the midst of all that. You know, Jesus spoke to that. He said, don't grumble against each other lest you be judged. What does that remind you of? Uh, isn't that that expression? Again, in the, in the Sermon of, on the Mount, where Jesus speaks to, um, to us with these words, judge not that you be not judged, for the judgment you pronounce shall be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? I mean, I don't know how Jesus said that with a straight faith. That's a funny line, right? I mean, just when you imagine it, you think about it, it's so true. It's so true. There we are with this big log in our eye. And yet somehow we think we're good enough to be the speck. See the speck in somebody else's eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? In the midst of difficulty. We grumble against each other. We fight against each other. Because I don't like how you're handling that. Or you don't like how I'm handling that. Or you're whining too much. Or I'm whining too much. Whatever it is. He says, just be patient. Not only with the Lord, but be patient with each other. Be patient with each other in the midst of this. This is hard for all of us. This is difficult for all of us. Don't judge in that sense. Be patient with each other. Because the Lord is near. You're going to be judged with the same measure that you use as you criticize your brothers. And then he says, take the example of the patience and suffering of of, of the prophets. He said, this this has been going on for a long time. You know, Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, said what? Blessed are those who are persecuted, right? Rejoice and be glad, for they did the same thing to the prophets. It's been going on. He said, you're stuck in this period of time when you're being exploited by the rich. You can't get out of it. How are you going to live? Well, well, you can take vengeance. Don't do that. You can become so discouraged and enter a deep sense of despair. No, don't do that. Realize the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming. It won't always be like this. Strengthen your hearts in the midst of this situation. God is with you. Endure it. Persevere. He didn't say it here, but he said it before. Counted joy. You're growing up. This is from God. It will work for your good. The good of your maturity. So continue to persevere on in the midst of this. Be, Be patient in the midst of suffering like the prophets. I mean, why did they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet? Well, not only because he looked at the, the people and saw their sin, but, but because he was tormented by them on so many occasions. One occasion, you might remember, they threw him into what was to be a dry well. Well, a dry well meant that there was no water in it, but it was about this thick with mud. And he almost died in the midst of that had they not drug him out of it. He knew persecution. And then finally this. Verse 11, behold, uh, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I mean, of all the people who shouldn't have suffered on the face of the earth, besides Jesus, is Job. 
That, that was the impression we get as we read the opening chapter of Job. He was a righteous man. And so you read about him and, and you say, well, there's, there's no reason why he should suffer really, uh, especially at the hand of God. And then, you know, the little discourse between Satan and God. And so God says we can have Adam, just don't touch his body. But he loses everything outside. He loses his home. He loses his wealth. He loses his cattle. He loses his sheep. loses his children. The Lord gives, he says. The Lord takes away. And then Satan and God raise the stakes, if you will, and you can have it his body. And then he's just miserable. Every inch of his body is painful. So I says, curse God. He says, no, I know my Redeemer lives. James was, I mean, Job was no milquetoast. I mean, he struggled with all of this and he questioned and all of that. But at the very end, he got a vision of God. And he closed his mouth because he knew at that point that everything that had happened to him was worth it. Because he knew the Lord. He grew up. And then the Lord's compassion and mercy, he restored everything to him. And he says, well, that's it. You're going through this. Think about this. Think about the fact that the, that the Lord is near. The Lord is coming. It won't always be like this. And, and think about the fact that, that just like the farmer, there was the first rain and the latter rain. The first rain has come. Jesus has come. He will come again. There'll be a harvest and it will be great. Remember, they persecuted the prophets. It's happening still. And think of Job, what happened in his life. His, he was miserable. He could do nothing about that. What did he do? Well, he remained steadfast, patient in that sense. Did he struggle with it? Sure. Are you struggling with it? Yeah. But don't lose faith. Establish your hearts. Why? Because we know that God is at work. We know that God is at work. The farmer after the first rain knew that something was at work and he could wait till the second one and then harvest. Why? Because something was actually happening even though he couldn't see it. The prophets knew something was taking place that God would be true for, with it, to his word, but they never saw it. Job was in the midst of it. had no idea why this was happening to him. Just simply knew he couldn't get out of it. He knew he was there, stuck in it with the pain and the loss. He says, think about that and realize that a day is coming. A day is coming. When the present sufferings of this age will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Job would say yes and amen to that. The suffering was not worth comparing and it was suffering worse than probably any of us may suffer in the course of our lives. Suffering was not worth comparing to the glory that was revealed to him by God. James is saying, live like that. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. 
that you would enable us to have this kind of patience in the midst of difficulty. That um, if the world turns in such a way that we find ourselves exploited and used and defrauded and even killed, that we would stay together and stand together and not judge one another as one being more spiritual than the other or better than the other or any of that. But we would stand together to love one another and care for one another and be compassionate to one another and to speak well of each other and speak encouragement to each other and be empathetic towards one another, that we would love one another in that way and that we would be patient and wait it out Not with anger and vengeance and wrath. Not in the midst of despair and resolution simply. But Father in faith. Knowing. That you're at work. Knowing. That you're bringing good. Producing good. And knowing. That a day will come and we'll see that. The present difficulty, the present suffering wouldn't be worth it all comparing to the glory that you reveal. So help us, Father, if the world turns against us that we would be those brothers and sisters. Help us too, Father, in the midst of particular struggles that we may be facing right now that discourage So enable us to be encouraged by this word. Enable us to live on it and from it. Whether it be illness. Whether it be a relational situation that seems to be stuck in the mud. Whether it be a financial situation that gives the appearance to us that there's no way out. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would enable us to be patient, steadfast, that our hearts would be strengthened, knowing that the Lord is near. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there will be others available to pray. Uh, up in these pews off to my left in the front of the sanctuary. If you have particular needs, uh, let me encourage you to come and allow them to pray with and for you. Now please receive this as God's benediction. And now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and always. And together let us sing.